Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 214 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at Uber. Here in the UK, we have news that the Financial Conduct Authority has released data which reveals that financial bodies have seen a significant increase in the number of DDoS attacks since the war in Ukraine. We then travel to Portugal, where more details were emerged of the leaked NATO documents that we first mentioned to you in last week's episode of the GPL Weekly Show. And then we have news that Capital One has finally had its consent order removed after improvements to data management at the finance company. We then have another update from Cisco, who are attributing the cyber attack that they suffered to the Lapsus data group. And then to the USA, where voting machine data breaches are raising concerns ahead of the midterm elections. We then have an update from LastPass on their data breach. And then we look at an issue which several of you contacted us about via our help desk, about GDPR and the use of drones. So we hope that our guide here will at least give you some pointers as to where you should be thinking. We then have news of a data breach at U-Haul in the USA. And we then return to Europe, where we now have a list of GDPR-safe cloud providers. We then travel to Malaya, where there's a tool for the investigation into the Malaya mobile phone data breach to be reopened. And we then travel to Kansas in the USA, where Seesaw has had a data breach. We then travel to Ohio, where Brickler and Eckler have settled a class action after a data breach. And then to Indonesia, where the police have named one suspect in a government data breach. We're going to go back to USA and this time to Georgia, where the physicians, spine and rehabilitation specialists have had a data breach. And then to New York, where key bank mortgages have had a data breach. We're going to travel to Singapore, where Starbucks have had a data breach. And then the first of two articles from Australia. In the first, we travel to Victoria, where the data watchdog is calling for mandatory data breach notifications to be introduced. And then we have an Australian-wide issue where Australian universities are calling for the adoption of rules similar to GDPR as they claim their current rules are inhibiting data transfers with other research institutions. So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. We love receiving your feedback. So if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Uber announced on Thursday evening that it was responding to a cybersecurity incident but didn't provide any further details other than to say that the company was in contact with law enforcement. However, an unknown threat actor claims to have gained unauthorised access to all of Uber's internal third-party services. This anonymous actor has reached out to multiple publications and cybersecurity researchers claiming responsibility for the incident and offering information about himself and the hack. In a conversation with reporters at the New York Times, the actor identified himself as being 18 years old. He claimed to gain initial access to Uber's internal network by conducting a multi-factor authentication fatigue attack against one of the company's employees. The hacker spammed an Uber employee with multi-factor authentication requests for over an hour, then messaged the employee on WhatsApp. Claiming to be a member of Uber's IT department, the hacker told the employee to accept the authentication request in order to stop the constant notifications. Unfortunately, the employee was fooled by the social engineering scheme and complied with the request, giving the attacker access to the employee's company's virtual private network. The attacker connected to the VPN and scanned Uber's internal network, revealing some PowerShell scripts within the network share. The PowerShell scripts contained login credentials for the company's Cytoxic admin account. Cytotic being a privileged access management platform. The hacker used these credentials to log into Cytotic and extract the secret keys for all connected Uber services. The attacker has posted screenshots showing evidence of unauthorized access to Uber's AWS instance, HackerOne Bounty Bug Tracker, Sentinel One Administration Panel, Slack Workspace, VMware vSphere Virtualization Program, Google Workspace, and Financial Data. He also claims of access to Uber's Duo two-factor authentication service, Confluence Workspace, and two monorepos from the company's fabricated development suite. Uber's Hacker One bug bounty tracker has been disabled, presumably in response to the hack, but this action was likely taken too late. The hacker appears to have accessed all of the company's bug bounty tickets, evidenced by comments left on every ticket saying Uber has been hacked in capital letters. 
He also left a message in the company's Slack workspace announcing the hack, but Uber employees apparently didn't take this message seriously at first. According to an Uber employee who did not wish to be named, the company's staff took the message as a joke and mocked the hacker, even after Uber sent an urgent notice to its employees telling them to stop using Slack. While Uber is still investigating and responding to the incident, its preliminary investigation has revealed no evidence of sensitive user data being accessed by the hacker. The company also reports that all of its services are currently operational and its internal software tools are coming back online. If we get any further updates on this from Uber, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. On Wednesday this week, Picker Security, the pioneer of breach and attack simulation technology, released cyber incident data obtained from the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. Through a Freedom of Information request, PCAS can reveal a steep rise in distributed denial of service DDoS attack reported to the regulator. 25% of cyber incidents submitted to the FCA in the first half of 2022 involved DDoS, compared to 4% in 2021. Pickus believes the primary reason for the significant increase in DDoS attacks in UK finance firms being targeted by nation-state attackers and hackers during the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict. DDoS attacks, including sophisticated carpet bombing, are often used against providers of critical infrastructure to disrupt operations and deny access to vital services. The observed rise in DDoS attacks also coincides with a reported increase in DDoS for higher websites and ransomware operators using DDoS as a tactic to pressure and extort money from targets. Other key findings from Picture Security's Freedom of Information request, which also includes 2021 data obtained from the FCA, include the FCA received 55 reports of material cyber incidents in the first half of 2022, down 25% from 73 in the first half of 2021. 64% of reported material cyber incidents in the first half of 2022 were due to cyber attacks. The number of cyber attacks in the first half of 2022 involving malware and phishing decreased 75% and 50% respectively compared to the same period in 2021. Cyber incidents involving ransomware decreased 63% in the first half of 2022 compared to the number reported in the first half of 2021. DDoS attacks are a concern for financial institutions with their ability to disrupt operations and even bring them down entirely. UK financial institutions are in the crossfire of the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine and have become a direct target for nation-state attackers and activists seeking to disrupt Ukraine's allies. While it's encouraging that financial firms reported fewer cyber incidents in the first half of 2022 than they did during the equivalent period in 2021, it's certainly no time for complacency. As threats evolve, financial institutions must continue to proactively harden their defences. This includes validating that security controls and processes provide protection against the latest risks. More details of the NATO data exfiltrated in Portugal have been made clear this week after the data appeared for sale on a dark website. Hundreds of documents were reportedly stolen and the Portuguese government is facing tough questions about why the breach was not discovered for weeks. The incident was not discovered until United States intelligence came across the pilfered NATO documents on the dark web. The NATO documents were taken from the Armed Forces General Staff Agency of Portugal, the government body that essentially runs the country's military. The breach is sort of occurred sometime over the summer of this year, but has not yet been pinpointed as the agency was completely unaware of it until the documents appeared on the dark web. The NATO documents were not discovered by US intelligence until they'd been sold via a dark web auction site. Agents notified the US Embassy in Lisbon, which in turn notified the Portuguese government, which had ordered a complete inquiry into how it occurred. Inside sources have told local Portuguese media that the stolen NATO documents were of extreme gravity. They're the type of documents that are normally required by protocol to be kept on air gap systems, but the sources say that bots programmed to scan for these sorts of documents picked them up via the internet. The attack was reportedly conducted over an extended period of time and in several stages. The Portuguese government has yet to comment on the attack or on these media reports. If reports are to be believed, the most likely cause is that someone connected the air gap systems to an internet-connected portion of the internal network for the sake of convenience. NATO policy is not to publicly discuss leaks of classified information, so there are likely to continue to be uncertainty about this breach and the subsequent dark web auction. It's unclear if it's connected to the theft of the NATO documents in any way, but in early August, Minister of Defence for Portugal, Helena Chereves, issued an order for an additional €11.5 million Euros to be allocated to training and consulting services related to cyber defences over the next eight years. 
The incident raises fresh questions of NATO partner cybersecurity readiness shortly after an August hack of France's MBDA missile systems saw classified intelligence documents stolen and sold on the dark web. MBDA manufactures missiles that are supplied by NATO and are currently being used in the war in Ukraine. Reports indicate that an external hard drive belonging to one of MBDA's suppliers was hacked. 80 gigabytes of documents surfaced on a dark web forum and were sold to at least one buyer at a price of 15 bitcoins. That breach appears to have included NATO documents rated secret and classified, but did not carry the top COSMIT secret designations. A sample of the files indicate they were produced from 2017 to 2020. NATO documents were also reportedly part of the wide-ranging 2020 data breach of the US federal government, which occurred through upstream technology partners such as Microsoft and SolarWinds. That attack has been attributed to Russia's state-backed advanced persistent threat teams seeking intelligence rather than dark web criminal profiteers. The involvement of these relatively less sophisticated groups, which had previously steered clear of powerful government targets in the interest of not attracting too much law enforcement attention to themselves, is a concerning development. Criminals have grown increasingly bold with the Conti ransomware group threatening to overthrow the government across the region during a recent attack. NATO met in June to extend its cybersecurity collaboration efforts to partners in the Asia-Pacific region for the first time in the interest of coordinating quick responses in the face of growing regional threats from both China and Russia. The organisation also reaffirmed a 2021 decision that a cyber attack on one member state could be considered a violation of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, making an attack against the body as a whole. If we receive any update on this, either from NATO or the Portuguese government, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll know that in episodes 53, 97, 199 and 210, we brought news of data breaches at Capital One. Well, Chapter 1 had some good news this week. They received notice from the Office of the Controller of Currency that the bank had achieved a level of safety and soundness that no longer required the extra oversight the office had imposed on the bank after its original 2019 cybersecurity breach. The OCC and Chapter 1 agreed to a consent order in 2020 that required the bank to pay the Treasury an $80 million fine and form a compliance committee. On a quarterly basis, that committee submitted written progress reports to the government describing the steps the bank had taken to fix the risk management board accountability and auditing issues that transpired prior to the breach. On Thursday this week, the OCC announced that it had now terminated that original consent order, being satisfied with the measures that Capital One had put in place. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. In episodes 209 and 212 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of a data breach at Cisco. Networking giant Cisco have now confirmed that the attack was a failed ransomware attempt conducted on behalf of the Lapsus Group. The cyber criminals obtained access to Cisco systems with a social engineering attack that began with an attacker taking control of an employee's personal Google account where credentials saved in the victim's browser were being synchronised. Then, in a series of sophisticated voice phishing attacks, the gang convinced the victim to accept multi-factor authentication push notifications, giving crooks the ability to log into the corporate VPN as if they were the victim. From there, the attackers were able to compromise Cisco systems, elevate privileges, drop remote access tools, deploy cobalt strike and other offensive malware, and add their own backdoors into the system. In a statement, Cisco said, based on artifacts obtained, tactics, techniques and procedures identified, infrastructure used and a thorough analysis of the backdoor utilised in this attack, we assess with moderate to high confidence that this attack was conducted by an adversary who had previously been identified in an initial access broker with ties to both UNC 2447 and Lapsus. While we did not observe ransomware deployment in this attack, the TTPs used were consistent with pre-ransomware activity commonly observed leading up to the deployment of ransomware in victim environment. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Atlanta in Georgia now, and the posting of sensitive passwords for voting systems online, copies of confidential voting software being available for download, and ballot counting machines being inspected by people not supposed to have access, have not given increased confidence in the use of ballot counting machines scheduled for the upcoming midterm elections in the USA. The list of suspected security breaches at local election offices since the 2020 election keeps growing, with investigations underway in at least three states, Colorado, Georgia and Michigan. 
The stakes appeared to rise this week when the existence of a federal probe came to light involving a prominent loyalist to former President Donald Trump, who's been promoting voting machine conspiracy theories across the country ever since the 2020 election. While much remains unknown about the investigations, one of the most pressing questions is what it could all mean for security of voting machines with the midterm elections now less than two months away. Election security experts say the breaches by themselves have not necessarily increased threats to November voting. Election officials already assume hostile foreign governments might have the sensitive data, and so they take precautions to protect their voting systems. The more immediate concern is the possibility that rogue election workers, including those sympathetic to the lies about the 2020 presidential election, might use their access to election equipment and the noise gained through the breaches to launch an attack from within. That could be intended to gain an advantage for a desired candidate or party, or to introduce system problems that would sow further distrust in the election results. In some of the suspected security breaches, authorities are investigating whether local officials provided unauthorised access to people who copied software and hard drive data, and in several cases have shared it publicly. After the Georgia breach, a group of election security experts said the unauthorised copying and sharing of election data from rural Coffee County presented serious threats to the November election. They urged the State Election Board to replace the touchscreen devices used throughout the state and use only hand-marked paper ballots. A leading expert in voting security said he's concerned about another use of the breach data. Access to the voting equipment data or software can be used to develop a realistic-looking video in which someone would claim to have manipulated a voting system, and of course to the casual observer it would appear that that was true, when in fact he hadn't done that, he was using hacks to get into the system, which wouldn't be commonly available. Such a fake video posted online or to social media on or after the day of the election itself could create chaos for an election office and cause voters to challenge the accuracy of the results. This really does create a fake news scenario. You're manufacturing false, compelling evidence of wrongdoing that never happened. There has been no evidence that voting machines have been manipulated either during the 2020 election or in this year's primaries. But conspiracy theories widely promoted among some Republicans have led to calls for replacing the machines with hand-marked and hand-counted ballots and raised concerns that they could be targeted by people working inside election offices or at the polling places themselves. The suspected breaches appeared to be orchestrated or encouraged by people who falsely claimed the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. In several of the cases, employees of local election offices or election boards gave access to voting systems to people not authorised to have it. These incidents emerged into public view after the voting system passwords for Mesa County in Colorado were posted online, prompting a local investigation and a successful effort to replace the county clerk for overseeing the elections. My Pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, who's organised or attended forums around the US peddling conspiracy theories about voting machines, said this week that he had received a subpoena from the federal grand jury investigating the breach in Colorado and was ordered to hand over his cell phone to FBI agents who approached him at a fast food restaurant in Minnesota. And they told me not to tell anybody, Lindor said in a video afterwards. OK, I won't, but I am. Lindor and others have been travelling the country over the past year, holding events where attendees are told that voting machines have been corrupted that officials are selected rather than elected, and that widespread fraud trust President Trump the 2020 election. In an interview with the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, Lindell said FBI agents questioned him about the Colorado breach and Dominion voting systems. The company provides voting equipment used in about 30 states and has had its machines targeted in Colorado, Georgia and Michigan. When agents asked him why he flies between different states, Lindell told them, I'm going to attorney generals and politicians, and I'm trying to get them to get rid of these voting machines in our country. The Justice Department did not respond when asked for details about its own investigation. It's understood that Dominion has sued Lindell and others, accusing them of defamation. In a statement this week, the company said it would not comment about ongoing investigations, but said systems are secure. It noted that no credible evidence has been provided to show that its machines did anything other than count votes accurately and reliably in all states. The scope of the current federal grand jury probe in Colorado isn't known, but local authorities have charged Mesa County clerk Tina Peters in what they described as a deceptive scheme which was designed to influence public servants, breach security protocols, exceed permissible access to voting equipment, and to set in motion the eventual distribution of confidential information to unauthorised people. Peters has pleaded not guilty and said she had the authority to investigate concerns that the voting equipment had been manipulated. She has appeared at numerous events with Lindell over the past year, including Lindell's Cyber Symposium last August, in which the digital copy of Mesa County's election management is distributed. 
David Becker, a former U.S. Justice Department attorney who now leads the Center for Election Innovation and Research, notes the irony of those who raise alarms about voting equipment being involved in allegations of breaches of the same systems. These people have been attacking the integrity of the elections and destroying the integrity of the elections, he said. We will continue to watch this with interest, of course, as the midterm elections continue this November across the USA. In episode 211, we brought news about a data breach at LastPass. And this week, LastPass are given a few more details. They say the attacker behind the August security breach had internal access to the company's systems for four days until they were deleted and evicted. In an update to security incident notification published last month, LastPass CEO Karim Tuba also said that the company's investigation, carried out in partnership with cybersecurity firm Mandiant, found no evidence the threat actor accessed customer data or encrypted password faults. Although the threat actor was able to access the development environment, our system design and controls prevented the threat actor from accessing any customer data or encrypted password faults, Tuba said. While the method through which the attacker was able to compromise the last pass developer's endpoint to access the development environment is still unclear, the investigation found that the threat actor was able to impersonate the developer after he had successfully authenticated using multi-factor authentication. After analysing source code and production builds, the company has also not found evidence that the attacker tried to inject malicious code. This is likely because only the build release team can push code from development into production, and even then, Tupa said the process involves code review, testing and validation stages. Additionally, he added that the LastPass development environment is physically separated from and has no direct connectivity to LastPass's production environment. Following the incident, LastPass has deployed enhanced security controls, including additional endpoint security controls and monitoring, as well as additional threat intelligence capabilities and enhanced detection and prevention technologies in both development and production environments. LastPass provides one of the most popular password management software in the world, with the company aiming it's used by over 33 million people and 100,000 businesses. Our help desk has received several calls recently about the use of drones and where GDPR and drones fit together. So we thought it was worth having a quick look at this situation so we can hopefully give you some advice. Most drones possess the ability to collect personal data because, of course, they're looking down on the real world and therefore they may capture things like vehicle registration and might capture any other sort of personally identifiable data. As a result, it's important to consider what obligations GDPR may impose on your use of these flying gadgets. In case you're not sure what drones are, drones are also known as unmanned aerial systems or unmanned aerial vehicles to give them their full technical titles and are becoming increasingly prevalent in our everyday lives, both in commercial and recreational contexts. Indeed, there are rumours, of course, that companies like Amazon are working long-term on plans to use drones to actually facilitate parcel deliveries. While originally developed for military missions, with recent improvements in technology and lowering of costs, drones have now been widely rolled out across the wider landscape for uses such as search and rescue operations, sports analytics and the delivery of goods. There's also now a thriving market in the sale of drones for personal use, with individuals using smaller drones for activities like aerial photography and exploration. With the vast majority of drones having often very advanced camera systems, however, a drone can effectively be used as a mobile surveillance system. Consequently, in the course of using one, it's highly possible that you'll capture the personal data of others in a manner which could trigger the application of GDPR. So let's look at a few common questions here. One is, will you be considered a data controller by using your drone? Under GDPR, you're considered to be a data controller if you determine the purpose and means of a particular data processing activity. What does this mean for drones? Well, it means if your drone has a camera which can take recordings that allow you to identify someone in the recording, you're likely to be considered to be processing personal data. If you do qualify as a data controller, you'll be obligated to comply with the suite of obligations imposed by GDPR. Only, of course, if you're a business or you're an individual using a drone on a commercial basis. If you're using it under your own steam, if you like, just as an amateur, then you don't need to worry about GDPR because as one-to-one individuals who aren't in a business, you're not affected by GDPR, but you should, of course, always be careful about what personally identifiable information you're collecting or able to collect using your drone. So, assuming you are a business, what lawful basis can you rely on? Because you must have a lawful basis in order to process personal data under GDPR. Now, of course, if you're using the drone in a limited setting, let's suppose you're using the drone to record aerial photographs of a house for a estate agent, then you can rely on consent because the house owner will give you consent and you can use that consent to take 
aerial photos of their house, but of course be aware that you need to be careful what you capture in addition, because if you capture neighbouring houses, you may have to knock on their doors and ask them consent. Otherwise, you may need to blur them out or edit the photograph to remove them. But if you're in a more public setting, it's unlikely you'll be able to obtain consent. You're not going to go around everybody in a particular situation and say, do you mind me filming you on my drone? And so you're likely to more than rely on legitimate interest. And of course, that's a reasonable reason for you to use, providing you have a reasonable business case for using the data that you're collecting. I would certainly suggest in any case, if you're a business and you're using a drone, you should conduct a thorough data privacy impact assessment to make sure that you've covered all the possible risks and that you've taken every action you can to minimise those risks. Now, it was Articles 12 to 14 of GDPR say that you must be transparent about the way that you're using data and that you're collecting data. Now, of course, this is going to be quite difficult with a drone, but one idea is perhaps that wherever you're operating your drone, you have appropriate signage saying that you're recording, similar to the signage you might use for CCTV, for instance, signalling the drone is recording by ensuring there are flashing lights or sounds on the drone so that anyone's aware that the drone is there, and identifying yourself as the drone operator by wearing high-vis clothing. You should also incorporate information about the processing purposes carried out by your drones on your online privacy policy. And it's a good idea, of course, if you're out filming with your drone, to have a copy of your privacy policy available for anyone who questions you to inspect. So, having taken all of that, is there any other parts of GDPR we need to worry about with drones? Well, yes, there is, because you need to think about data minimisation, because GDPR says only collect the minimum amount of data necessary for the processing purposes in question. So, if you're filming a house, for instance, and you capture someone's face in the garden, you ought really to blur out their face in the image that you subsequently use because you actually don't need their face. All you're really saying to people is, hey, have a look at this house. You also need to think, of course, about how long you're retaining the information. Again, if you're selling a house by an estate agent and the estate agent got drone footage, I would suggest the drone footage should be deleted as soon as the house has been sold because you don't need it anymore. It's very hard to justify why you need to keep that once the house has been sold. So remember that Using a drone as a recreational activity as a private individual, and as long as only you or others in your household are going to view that data, then you don't need to worry about GDPR. But if you're using it in any commercial context, then of course you do. If you're using a drone in either a public or a private capacity, do also be aware that there is the Commission Implementing Regulation EU 2019-947, which came into force on the 24th of May 2019, which has additional rules and procedures for the operation of drones. If you need any help with GDPR and your drone, perhaps you need help carrying out a data privacy impact assessment, perhaps you're not sure whether your use of the drone does fall under GDPR or not, then please get in touch with us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To America again now, and moving in the storage giant U-Haul International disclosed a data breach after a customer contract search tool was hacked to access customers' names and driver's license information. Following an incident investigation started on July the 12th after discovering the breach, the company found on August the 1st that attackers had accessed some customers' rental contracts between November the 5th, 2021 and April the 5th, 2022. After an in-depth analysis, our investigation determined on September the 7th, 2022, that the access information includes names and driver's license or state identification numbers. You all told affected customers in notification letters sent to impacted individuals. The attacker accessed the U-Haul rental contract search portal after compromising two unique passwords. While it didn't explain how the credentials were compromised, the company changed them after the breach was detected to block additional malicious activity. U-Haul added that no credit card information was accessed or acquired during the incident because the compromised search tool does not provide users with access to payment card information. The investigation determined an unauthorised person accessed the customer contract search tool and some customer contracts, the moving giant said in a statement. None of our financial payment processing or U-Haul email systems were involved. The access was limited to the customer contract search tool. U-Haul says it provides affected customers with one year of free identity theft protection services through Equifax to help them determine when or if their personal information is misused. U-Haul has a network of more than 23,000 locations across the US and Canada, and is the third largest self-storage operator in North America. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. There's been some doubt over the use of cloud data services and how that complies with GDPR. And this week, 
the EU has helped with that by issuing a list of GDPR compliant storage vendors, providing, and it's a very big providing, you make sure that you've instructed that vendor to only use servers within the EU or the UK to store your data and that you verify that they are doing that. But providing both of those situations are true, then the following operators are now approved. Amazon, via their Amazon S3 or Amazon Drive products. Google, for the Google Cloud Platform or Google Drive products. Microsoft, for Microsoft Azure or Microsoft OneDrive products. Backblaze, for their B2 Cloud Storage product. And others include Sync, PCloud, CrashPlan, Dropbox, IceDrive, iDrive, Qubit, Mega, Trezoret, Kufa, Box, or SecureSafe. As always, you should carry out a privacy impact assessment before you begin using cloud services to ensure that you have covered all the risks and you take whatever action you can to minimize those risks. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Malaysia now, and PKR's Fami Fazil has called on communications and multimedia minister Anua Musa to explain the written answer his ministry gave to a parliamentary question the Lembar Pantau MP posed three years ago after new evidence surfaced casting doubt on the truthfulness of the original answer given. Describing the development as startling, Fami said, it calls into question whether there was some kind of attempt to mislead the House or whether it was an answer on what had been investigated up to that point. The question page related to Malaysia's biggest debris incident involving 46 million mobile phone numbers, which sparked widespread public and media interest over the efficiency of personal data protection in place. Based on information available at the time, Farmi had asked the Minister to explain how the contractor managing the public cellular blocking service, PCBS, for the Malayan Communications and Multimedia Commission, the MCMC, could fail to protect the personal data of so many subscribers. He also asked what actions the Ministry had taken against the contractor. In a written reply issued in October 2019, the Ministry told the Duan Retiat that action had been taken against Numeva, SDMBHD, following an investigation by MCMC, the Personal Data Protection Department and the police. The statement added the investigation papers have been completed and sent to the Attorney General's chambers for actions. The Duan Retiat was also informed that following the investigation on January 26, 2018, MCMC had suspended Numeva's appointment as it found the company breached basic provisions in the contract between MCMC and Numeva. In addition, the statement said MCMC had informed Numeva it would not be renewing the PCBS agreement for an additional term of five years which the contract provided for. New information, however, suggests that Numeva may not have been responsible for the data leak. In a letter from Boutique Yaman's Commercial Crime Investigation Department, CCID, Team Mary's lawyers dated April 26, 2018, more than a year prior to the answer in Parliament, police confirmed that investigations revealed no evidence linking Numera or any of its staff with the leak or sale of the data. The Minister is in a position to perhaps do some explanation on this, Farmy said, adding that police should also confirm or deny whether investigations are ongoing. It's understood that by May 2018, the CCID had officially informed MCMC's Chief Operating Officer that the police had not been able to identify any suspect in the case and that no further action was contemplated unless new information was obtained. In another letter dated the August 2nd, 2019, the CCID informed MCMC that the Attorney General's Chambers did not intend to prosecute anyone in relation to the incident. The three letters appeared to contradict the Ministry's statement in Parliament holding Numera accountable for the data breach. Built and managed by Numera, the PCBS was intended to protect the public by disabling the operation of lost or stolen mobile handsets across all Malayan networks, even if their SIM cards were changed. Modelled on a similar system in use in the UK, the PCBS is meant to remove the incentives to steal phones, reduce street crime, and providing law enforcement authorities with important crime analytics. Last month, it was reported that investigations had resumed following the discovery of new digital forensic evidence, which suggested that an individual had made false statements under oath. In arbitration proceedings brought against MCMC for wrongful termination and other relief, Numera secured an order that a laptop computer kept by MCMC be subjected to a digital forensic investigation. It's understood that no such examination had been conducted on the device previously. The results were said to contradict sworn testimony by a key witness who was MCMC's official custodian of the laptop during the investigation. The laptop was meant to be kept securely by MCMC. 
belonging to the mayor of the laptop is said to have been configured with security credentials and software which allows it to securely connect to the PCBS infrastructure. Current investigations are believed to be centred on its use and safe storage after digital forensic experts found evidence which raised doubts about the explanation given by the witness previously. The witness is also believed to have been involved in the preparation of internal investigation reports on the day's leak incident, which led to Numera's suspension. Numera has since commenced arbitration procedures against MCMC in relation to the dispute. Both the MCMC and Numera declined to give us any further comment before we went to broadcast. To Andover in Kansas now, and Andover Public Schools have said it's pulled the popular messaging app Seesaw after the app was hacked. According to the Seesaw website, the app is used by 10 million teachers, students and family members, but the company declined to say how many users were affected by the hack. In a letter to parents, Andover Schools said some parents across the country had received explicit pictures through the messaging service. The school district said it pulled Seesaw from all students and staff accounts as it works with the company on the issue. Anyone who receives an email notification from Seesaw is advised not to open it. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Ohio now and Britta and Ashtler, a law firm which provides legal services to a number of healthcare systems in the state, was a victim of a ransomware attack in January 2021 and the attacker stole client and patient information of over 420,000 individuals. The law firm announced this daily breach in April 2021 and offered affected patients one year of free identity theft protection through Experian Identity Works. Consumers quickly took legal action against the law firm, arguing that their information was exposed to hackers due to subpar cybersecurity measures. Plaintiffs in the case say that the data breach could have been avoided or minimised through reasonable security policies. By failing to properly protect sensitive information from healthcare clients, Britta and Exla allegedly caused the data breach through negligence. Britta and Exla hasn't admitted any wrongdoing, but has agreed to resolve his allegations with a 1.95 million US dollar class and settlement. Under the terms of the settlement, class members can receive a cash payment based on their losses resulting from the data breach. Each class member can claim up to $5,000 in reimbursement for out-of-pocket losses such as identity theft protection services, credit monitoring, fraudulent charges and more. Class members can also receive payments for lost time resulting from the data breach. Class members can claim up to four hours of undocumented lost time at a rate of $20 per hour for a maximum payment of $80. Class members can claim an additional eight hours of documented lost time at the same rate of $20 per hour for an additional payment of up to $160. So therefore claiming the maximum allowed and documented and undocumented lost time will result in payments of up to $240. The deadline for exclusion and projection is November the 7th, 2022. And the final approval for the hearing for the settlement is scheduled for November the 17th, 2022. In order to receive the settlement benefits, class members must submit a valid claim form by December the 21st, 2022. If you want more information, you should contact the Court of Common Pleas for Hamilton County, Ohio, quoting case number A210186. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. To Indonesia now, and in Jakarta, the Indonesian police have named one suspect in the case involving the hacking of government data by a hacker going by the username Bjorka. The suspect, a 21-year-old identified by his initials as MAH, was arrested in Madian District, East Java, on Wednesday, September 14, 2022. MAH is a suspect and is currently under investigation by a special team, a spokesperson for the Indonesian police, Senior Commissioner Adi Yaja Seriana, informed reporters on Friday. However, MAH has not been detained since he has been cooperating with the investigation. The special team, established by the government to probe the case, comprises personnel from the Indonesian police, the Coordinated Ministry for Political, Legal and Security Affairs, the Communications and Information Ministry, the National Cyber and Encryption Agency, BSSN, and the State Intelligence Agency, BIN. Based on preliminary investigation, MAH was allegedly involved in Bjorka's operation. The suspect has shared details of a Telegram account named Bjorka Anzinium, Serviana said. The Telegram account was used to upload Bjorka's posts taken from its website, he said. MAH helped Bjorka publish three posts with Bjorka's account. On September the 8th, he published a message, Stop Being an Idiot, which was directed at the Communication and Information Ministry. On September the 9th, he published another message. The next leak will come from the President of Indonesia. On September the 10th, the account posted a message to support people who are struggling by holding demonstrations in Indonesia regarding the price of fuel oil. 
I will publish my Pertamina database too. Those were Bjork's messages published by the suspect. The motive to help Bjork was to become famous and get money, so the uninformed. The special team received some evidence including the SIM card, two cellular phones and the suspect's identity card. The public should remain vigilant and protect their personal data. The law prohibits people from supporting, facilitating the illegal distribution of personal data, Soriana said. The hacker, Bjorka, had become a topic of public discussion owing to their claims of having succeeded in hacking some government data, such as Indonesian citizens' data, SIM card user data, as well as data from President Joko Widodo's letters and documents. On September 14th, Coordinating Minister for Political, Legal and Security Affairs, Mamad MD, had assured that no state secrets had been leaked or hacked by a group of individuals claiming to be Bjorka. If we receive any update on this from any of the authorities in Indonesia, we will of course bring it to you in the next web episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Georgia in the USA now, and on September the 2nd, 2022, the Physicians, Spine and Rehabilitation Specialists of Georgia confirmed that the company experienced a data breach after an unauthorised party gained access to sensitive consumer data through what appears to be a ransomware attack. According to the Physicians, Spine and Rehabilitation Specialists, the breach resulted in the names, addresses, phone numbers, dates of birth, social security numbers, driver's licence numbers, medical diagnoses, medical treatment information and insurance information of certain individuals being compromised. Recently, the Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist sent out data breach letters to all affected parties, informing them of the incident and what they can do to protect themselves from identity theft and other fraud. According to a notice posted on the practice website, on July 11, 2022, the Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist became aware that the practice had been the target of a cyber attack. Evidently, the attack occurred the week prior to the company's discovery of the incident, and the hackers claimed to have access to remove certain sensitive information. The hackers also indicated they were willing to post the data they stole. After learning of the cyber attack, the Physician's Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist secured its computer network, contacted law enforcement, and began working with an outside cybersecurity firm to assist with the company's investigation. This investigation confirmed that sensitive information had been accessible to the hackers. Upon discovering that sensitive consumer data was accessible to an unauthorized party, the Physician's Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist reviewed the affected files to determine what information was compromised and consumers were impacted. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, the Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist of Georgia data breach affected 39,765 people. To New York now, and homeowners who took out mortgages with KeyBank have been hit with a data breach in which hackers may have obtained their names, addresses and the first eight digits of their social security numbers. Some bank customers since August have been receiving letters headlined Notice of Vendor Security Incident, informing them that an unauthorized external party had gained remote access on July the 5th to a data network maintained by the Overbc Well company, which tracks insurance policies for those who have key bank mortgages. In addition to the first eight digits of social security numbers and the names, hackers also obtained mortgage account numbers and information, phone numbers, property information, home insurance policy numbers, and home insurance information of homeowners according to a letter that KeyBank's Portland, Maine office sent to homeowners. OSC is investigating this incident with the assistance of third-party cybersecurity experts. They have deployed enhanced security monitoring tools across their network and notified the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, of this incident, KeyBank said. It's not immediately clear how many people in New York or nationwide across the U.S. have been impacted. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Singapore now, and Starbucks says that personal data of some of its customers in Singapore has been compromised, including names, birth dates, and mobile numbers. While credit card details and passwords have not been leaked, it has advised customers to change their passwords. Starbucks sent email messages to multiple customers on Friday, notifying them that it detected unauthorized activity online, as well as some unauthorized access to customer details. These included names, dates of birth, mobile numbers and residential addresses, if the personal data had previously been provided to Starbucks. It said details related to its rewards customer loyalty programs, such as stored value and credits, were unaffected. Credit card data has also not been compromised since it stored this information, according to Starbucks. Starbucks said local authorities had been informed and it was insisting on the investigation. It also noted that while passwords were not compromised, customers were encouraged to reset their password immediately. In its email to customers, Starbucks said it had implemented additional measures to safeguard customer information, but did not provide details on what that entailed. 
In a statement, a spokesperson said the company was made aware of a data breach on Tuesday, September the 13th that might affect customers who had registered an e-commerce account with the retailer and previously completed a transaction via the Starbucks in-app delivery or online store services. Customers affected by the breach had all been notified by email, the spokesperson said. She noted that reasonable steps were immediately taken to protect customer data, but again did not specify what these were. She said the company, like all major retailers, had safeguards in place to constantly monitor for fraudulent activity. The security of our customers' information is critically important and we will continue to do what it takes to protect them, she said. If we get any update on this from Starbucks in Singapore, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wished it was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Australia now, and Victoria's privacy watchdog has called for data breach notification laws in the state after a government department failed to tell people that they had been exposed in a serious breach by a man convicted of sexually assaulting a child. The former case worker, Alexander Jones, is currently serving a six-year prison sentence for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old boy whose information he attempted to access through the government database. He had unauthorised access to the system because it was not revoked by the government department when he left one of its service providers in 2017, despite serious concerns about his behaviour at the time. When the data breach was investigated by the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner, the OVIC, in 2020, the department said it was voluntarily notifying the children whose data had been accessed by Jones. This did not occur, according to a subsequent wider investigation incident by the state's ombudsman released this week prompting the call for a mandatory data breach notification scheme. OVIC's data breach inquiry revealed that Jones had unauthorised access to the personal information of dozens of vulnerable people for more than a year through the state's Client Relationship Information System for Service Providers, or CRISP, system. Published last year, the watchdog's investigation was highly critical of Victoria's Department of Health and Human Services, which contracted the service provider that employed Jones. The Commissioner issued a compliance notice for the Department to improve how it protects personal information and received assurances that it was voluntarily notifying all the children whose information was accessed. A second investigation by Victorian Ombudsman published its findings on Wednesday this week, confirming that that notification did not happen. It found the Department had provided inaccurate and ultimately misleading information to Victoria's Information Commissioner. All affected individuals were eventually notified, but only after the oversight had been identified, a process that had taken several years. While I'm disappointed the department provided incorrect information to me, I note the ombudsman's finding that it was not intentional, Victoria's Information Commissioner Sven Blumel said in a statement. The department's failure to notify all the children whose information was involved highlights the need for data breach notification laws in Victoria, which would require government agencies to tell individuals whose personal information is subject to a data breach that the data breach has occurred. Victorian agencies are not subject to a notifiable data breach scheme that applies to federal agencies and is being progressed in New South Wales and Queensland. This means Victorian agencies are not legally obliged to notify individuals when their information has been compromised by a data breach, Mr Blumow said. Laws that require notification would provide greater certainty to agencies about what they need to do when a data breach occurs and give confidence to members of the community that they will be informed if their information has been compromised. It would also allow individuals to take steps to protect themselves if their personal information has been impacted by a data breach. The Victorian Ombudsman investigation also found that the department had managed some aspects of data breach poorly. The breach was facilitated by inadequate privacy measures of the department, which also failed to regularly audit access to the information system, despite multiple warnings about the need to improve privacy. The poor handling of the breach included notifying the mother of Jones's victim, referred to in the inquiries as Zach. She was told by the department Jones had accessed information about the child and his family. While Jones had attempted to access information about Zach, he was unsuccessful, according to data logs examining the investigation. The impact on the family was huge, the ombudsman said. Zach's mother was not only dealing with the aftermath of a sexual assault on her child, but was also concerned about Jones's access to Zach's information. She was given inaccurate and contradictory information about Jones's access to her son's information, which resulted in significant safety concerns and upheaval for the family. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week, and remaining in Australia, deficiencies in Commonwealth privacy laws are stopping European researchers from sharing data with their Australian counterparts and may force research projects offshore. Universities are calling for an alignment with GDPR and a better standard from the Australian government to restore international collaboration. 
in a submission to the Department of Home Affairs Transportation on a National Data Security Action Plan, the University of Sydney said the introduction of GDPR in 2018 had limited local access to research data. European researchers are not willing to share data with Australian researchers because Australian law is far less protective and contains loopholes, the University of Sydney submittance says. Deficiencies in Commonwealth privacy legislation, e.g. no requirement for small businesses to report data breaches, prevent research data movements from GDPR states to Australia. In contrast, GDPR typically requires tides of oversight and for data breach to be reported to the appropriate authority within days. In a separate submission, the university-backed not-for-profit Australian Research Data Commons, ARDC, notes the European Commission does not recognise Australia as having data protections equivalent to those provided under GDPR. Over time, this will become increasingly problematic for Australian researchers as the proportion of research data they can access and the ability to collaborate with GDPR-bound counterparts will decline. Australian researchers may prefer to move their data and research activity into offshore research infrastructure and into environments recognised as being compliant with GDPR, the ARDC said. The University of Sydney backed an alignment of Commonwealth legislation to GDPR through revisions to the Privacy Act, currently under a separate review by the Attorney General's Department. This would result in significant uplift in international research collaborations with European partners and would remove loopholes in Commonwealth legislation, the University said. The submission also warns of non-alignment in state and territory law is limiting cross-jurisdictional data sharing within Australia. This is particularly problematic when collaborating with researchers in other states and when attempting to link state and national data sets together, affecting many health, medical and population studies and initiatives, the submission said. Variations between states' record-keeping legislation causes further complications as different rules apply for the long-term retention and management of research data. Overarching legislation and frameworks that aggregate data and remove state borders should be prioritised. Another submission to the Home Affairs Consultation from experts at the University of Queensland backs the adoption of some aspects of GDPR, but warned that a complete adoption would impose the most restrictive part on Australian businesses and bring a significant new enforcement load to scale it up across the Australian economy. There are opportunities for a federal government framework which is in line with international expectations and at the same time homogenises across states and territories, the University of Queensland submission said. In addition to the concerns about international and national consistency, the University of Sydney also raised concerns about the overly complex landscape of government data bodies and legislative framework, supply chain security and understilled technology workforce and criticised the ability of government to protect and handle data. The inability to adequately protect valuable data assets also impacts researchers who wish to access these systems, the University of Data Sydney submission said. The prevalence of poor data security undermines safe data sharing practices, which leads to refusals of reasonable data sharing requests by researchers and inhibits the ability of researchers to collaborate. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should be not be taken as specific legal advice you should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.